Hi, everybody. Welcome back. It's Jacqueline. And Alana. And here's another episode of Black and Yellow. Welcome back, lovely listeners. Um, so we have a really fun episode in store for you guys. Um, Alana and I are getting a little geeky today. We're talking about one of our favorite topics, theater, specifically Broadway. Um, we are both big fans of The Great White Way, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> it's actually a real thing. Um, that's what they call the the streets between 42nd and 53rd, which is predominantly Broadway, and the Great White Way. Um, full disclosure, I didn't know that before we were recording this, and then I was like, what? So surprise. <laughs> if, if any of you guys are surprised as well, um, I was too. Uh, we are both trained theater actress- actresses, so the subject matter is close to our hearts, um, which made making this episode somewhat bittersweet, um, as you'll find out. We always aim to do episodes that challenge us and our perspectives on topics that are near and dear to our hearts, and I think this episode very much fits that bill. Um, so before we get to today's topic, I think it would be fun if our audience got to know a little bit more about our theater backgrounds. We don't talk about it a ton on the show. It's sprinkled here and there. Um, but in an effort to really set the foundation of how deep our theater roots do go, Alana, why don't you start telling us um, by telling us your experience in the theater world? Sure. So, uh, your brother and I share a high school. Fun yes. fact. Uh, I went to a performing arts high school, Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. Shout out. I studied acting there, um, but was a pretty theatrical kid growing up. In Los Angeles, there's a lot of what I call, or what I, I think are called, like, um, preparatory arts schools like the Colburn School of Performing Arts which is downtown in downtown LA which I went to before going to high school acting classes all the way Mm -hmm. dance classes all the way you know like theater like I was a theatrical kid and so stages and theaters were never too far from me yeah and then going to LOXA which is essentially a fame school west Right. For anyone that knows uh, Fame School East or what that that <laughs> reference is, um, it'd be like so, yes. like Laguardia. Yeah, yeah, exactly for sure. Like we had academics eight a.m. until lunchtime, and then lunchtime until the evening would be acting classes, and then you're like in tech for shows or you're in shows. So it's very much a work life sort of school it gets you prepared to become a working professional uh, from a quite a young age uh and then went to Ithaca College where I further studied acting in the theater department um which is having its own drama right now my my alma mater no real talk like like Ithaca College is having its own little bit of racial drama because uh in in light of all that's happened a lot of uh, former students of color have gotten together and basically said, Ithaca College, you can do better. You need to diversify and you need to be more inclusive to BIPOC performers that you accept into your school, which is valid because I don't think I ever played one black character the entire time I was wow. in college. Just, <laughs> like, just to give you a little bit Not of... Um, yeah, like just to give you a little bit of insight. Um, 
but again, like most of my classes were in the, were in Dillingham Center, were in the theater building. There were theaters all around. Very much uh, was raised on those theater phrases that I think are really common if you grew up around performance. Things like give your life to the craft and, you know, live your work every day. And those kinds of statements that, as a kid, they're kind of rote and they get really stuck in your mind. And then as you get older and, and, and do a podcast episode, like we are doing today, you start to realize that maybe that thinking is flawed and it stunts you a Mm. little bit, Mm. but all that said, love anytime I was in New York pre-pandemic going to see Broadway, uh, even in Los Angeles, I was going to see theater at least twice a week. Wow, really? Always experiencing it. Yeah, because theater in Los Angeles can be really affordable. I mean, it's not like going to it's not like going to theater on Broadway where like you have to pay a pretty penny. Like theater here, it's not always the massive, like 200 seat houses. So you can do a nice little 90 minute show for 10 bucks and go about your day, which I actually low-key like kind of really love about the theater in LA. Like yeah. it's edgier. Obviously it's more convenient in terms of location and it's not as expensive. So right. Yeah. And then I'm in a playwrights development group every Monday. So surrounded further by playwrights. So my life is very much all performance and my uh, early years were all performance as well. Mm. I got to ask you, Jack, what's your background with theater? What are those foundational roots? So I think similar to you, not as similar to, I would say you definitely have more. I'm jealous that you got to go to Loxa, and I think you definitely were more heavily involved in the theatery aspect or the showy aspect, which obviously makes you, makes why you're such a wonderful performer. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> but I started, my route to theater was more dance, so still mm-hmm. stage, um, but I was put into... Uh, dance pretty early on specifically this is so Asian specifically (laughs) I have to say it is Um, specifically Chinese folk dance Um, what is that so it's Chinese music you know um, like instrumentals like very like I guess I could just send you some I can't even describe it. It's been so long. Um, if I hear it, I know. Um, Jack, that has to go up on our Instagram. <laughs> like, uh, like I never knew this about you, and now my interest is totally peaked. Um, so a lot of Chinese folk dance, like you know, my brother was in it too. Haha, <laughs> this is funny. He's not going to listen to this episode, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> I can laugh at him anyways. Um, yeah, I was like, you know, I don't, I can't even describe it. It's like. You wear like like a lot of flow. There's like a specific type of clothing as well, like Ooh. flowy bell bottoms, like a lot of sequins, um, like yes! like silk scarves. Um, so a little bit of of, of that as well as um, ballet, um, gymnastics, ice skating. A lot of the more the more like what you would usually think of as as dance. Um, <laughs> Don't, don't don't be shady to folk dancing. Come on now, Jack. It's just funny. Like I forget that I have that experience under my belt. So to think I about it, it now, you that. know, like twenty years later is like oh, a little odd. Um, <laughs> there's pictures of me. Definitely, maybe I can find one of those pictures of me with like a green thing around my head and and post it on our Instagram page. <gasps> yes. um, I think I was a grass. Like it, we were like all little grass like little girls oh my god that is so perfect for you (laughs) 
I remember the costume was so itchy, and I was like, oh. I love that. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Talk about throwback. Yes. Um, Bring out the pictures. Right. So there you go. Um, Started from a young girl on stage. I loved performing. I loved being silly. I loved just kind of being, you know, wacky and strange and all that stuff that you can only find – not only, but there's a specific type of strangeness that theater has, you know? Yes. Um, which yeah. I'm all about. Um, and then I always did theater in school, of course, with what was considered to be theater, not like your theater, but obviously like middle school, high school theater. Um and then I went to, and then and, and then I had I did a bunch of like acting when I was a little bit younger too. So I got a little bit of that like on on behind the camera in front of the camera mm. stage experience which was very mm-hmm. different but super fun as a young girl yeah. um and then it kind of stopped everything and then um I decided to pursue it more uh wholeheartedly when I graduated from high school I went to AMDA um mm-hmm. American Musical and Dramatic Academy or Dramatic Arts sorry I, I always confuse it with ADA which is another one um And that is right smack dab in the middle of Hollywood. Um, And their training, although although in Los Angeles, their training is heavily based on theater. Um, You know, so a lot of um, uh, studying, script studying, a lot of reading of a a ton of plays. Like, like I I don't, I think I've read like over like a hundred plays while I was there. Um, so yeah, like a lot of classical training too, like Ibsen, um, you know, uh, like all these, like, yeah, Chekhov, um, all these wonderful classic playwrights that kind of laid the foundation in a way, um, Mm -hmm. which are all kind of also not Asian. Um, so I can also say that during AMDA, all the productions they put up, Never once was there an Asian role. Um, the I guess the good thing about AMDA is that they, uh, for the most part, did blind casting. Um, mm. Because our school had a lot of African-Americans and Latinos as well. But, you know, they of course they would do, they would like see who was in the class of that year and pick a musical tailored to that class. Ah. so like one year obviously it was legally blonde and it was like well we know it's gonna be a blonde girl who's gonna get the lead and that's just not fair right right? Mm, um thinks she's gonna have white skin too hmm, i wonder it's not like they're gonna get a like you know an asian girl or a black girl and then dye her hair blonde like i highly doubt that right (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh (laughs) Shady Jack A. I know. I can't help it. It's all coming out now. Um, so so yeah, so then I did theater. I did I went I got my degree in acting from there. I did go to school for a bit in because the AMDA has a campus in New York. So which was great. So I got to go to school like right in the middle of Manhattan, which was a dream come true, and I did not want to leave. Um I was there wow. I was there for a semester and I we would see shows every weekend. I got to see SNL twice. Just like mm. just like one of the pinnacle like moments of my life. Um so and then after that, you know, um I just kind of continued and dabbled in some of the theater in Los Angeles, which is very different. Um Indeed, I can say. So, so there you go. That is, um, dude, I give you, I give you a lot of credit because I, I, so my college was in upstate New York. So obviously Broadway was like the place that everyone wanted to go. And like the idea of like 
chasing that Broadway dream and like doing the New York thing always scared me. So mm. I give you a shit ton of credit. It's tough. Because I imagine. Yeah. And, and But to be able to hear someone be like, I loved it. Like I was there. I yeah. loved it. I would have gone back. I would have stayed. Like it was rough. To you. My, my dorm room was probably mm. the size of an SUV. Uh, car mm-hmm. and oh yeah it was pretty bad it was the time like right it was so tiny and I had a roommate um yeah and and it's brutal like I, I remember like getting like the like, classic New York scene where like a taxi like drives by you really fast and then it gets like you get covered in like 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 sewage water street goo street, yeah <laughs> yeah I was I remember being like ah oh, I hate this place <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, that I, I, that it was perfect for that age. You know, I don't know if I right, could do it now. For sure, I hear you. Well, I, I bet you were the pl- the prettiest blade of grass during your folk <laughs> dancing <laughs> concerts. I love that. I gotta find that. I, you have to. That is amazing. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Well, anyone who grew up in or around theater is generally drawn to it because it has this this ethos or this this aura around it that encourages uniqueness and individuality, right? It provides an outlet for people who want to create in a collaborative way. It's a place to go where people can feel comfortable to be themselves and not judge for it. And best case scenario is quite frankly that they are celebrated for their uniqueness. Um. It's also a place where people can participate in fantasy and in escapism while producing a beautiful work of art that helps to send or spread a message. So that's why theater's rad. That's why people are drawn to it. And we've always been high-key theater nerds. This is something we initially bonded over, um, who love to experience live theater and then talk about this experience, whether it was talking about a production we've seen or our favorite stage door moments, which for those of you who aren't sure, the stage door is the door that is used by actors and theater workers when entering and exiting the theater. So a stage door moment usually happens when you catch your favorite Broadway performer heading out and you ask for an autograph and a picture. Wait. Did I just say autograph? What is this, 1995? Uh, back in the day when autographs were a thing, you would ask, like, you know, Audra McDonald or Liza Minnelli or whoever for an autograph. Anyways, all of that said, theater people usually go to the theater to escape their problems, which is why when the problems of theater or Broadway are brought to light, it makes those problems feel more personal. So, In June, after the death of George Floyd, a collaborative network of more than 300 Black, Indigenous, and people of color theater makers came together to produce a 29-page document in which they list demands on how to make American theater anti-racist and more inclusive to Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Uh, This call for change is called We See You, White American Theater, not to be confused with the letter which begins Dear White American Theater. Uh, And its goal was to address the scope and pervasiveness of anti-Blackness and racism in American theater today. This strong testimonial letter was basically directed at the white-dominated theater industry nationwide and was signed by dozens of prominent playwrights, and actors of color. Some call this a declaration for change. Other call it a declaration of war. But it landed with this thunderous thud that has rocked the theater world. And we are talking about that letter and how white American theater is handling the demands of that letter on today's episode. 
Yeah, so for just a little bit more about how the We See Winemaker in Theater got started as per their website, what began as a conversation between three theater makers concerned about the devaluation and violence against black bodies in the world quickly evolved into a Zoom call with 30 people discussing the way racism and white supremacy have also shaped and corrupted our theater institutions, ranging from the universities to not-for-profit commercial houses. So fair warning, Alana and I may geek out on you a little bit, but we'll do our best to keep it under control. Um, we loved working on the episode and we hope you enjoy listening to it. But before we can get into the interview, let's put our money where our mouth is. Yay, money first, turkey second. Yay. So this small business segment is where we like to literally put our money where our mouth is. It's our form of economic protest. It's diversifying our dollars as well. I always like to say your vote is literally where you put your money, um, where you Mm -hmm. spend your money, where you choose to spend your money. And we like to support Black, Asian, owned, local, not local, wherever you are, um, because especially during these times and now all times and forever on, uh, we should really start considering uh, this this aspect of our lives. Mm-hmm. So um, I love my put my money where my mouth is, um, literally, uh, is also um, has to do with food. We all know I'm a big foodie. Um, so their story <laughs> is beautiful. Um, it's called Asian veggies you can't get more simple and straightforward than that um although they have other stuff besides just veggies I loved it was like so like this is it like this is what we are um they're not trying to hide anything they're pretty transparent um so Asian veggies specializes in delivering Asian specialty products directly to your doorstep we are a company born from the pandemic here's our story Growing up as a kid, my dad was a produce wholesale, a wholesaler, excuse me, who would bring home all types of Asian vegetables, kind of like my mom. I had access to all types of these veggies, and it became a staple in my everyday diet. Since moving out of the Bay Ridge, they're based out of New York, I realized it's almost near impossible to get any of these best vegetables near me or through online merchants, which is why we're here. During the COVID-19 lockdown, my dad's business had taken a huge hit as restaurants and supermarkets were forced to shut down. Instead of watching all of his produce and business go to waste, we took a stand by we took a stand by creating this website to bring more order volumes his way. Mm-hmm. Our produce is directly resu- uh, directly sourced from our partner farms that my dad has invested in. This means that we're we are the first hands to touch your produce after it leaves our farm. The farm. Our mission is to provide direct access to specialty pro- products that cannot be easily sourced from outside the markets. Mm. So it is it is really, really sweet. Um let me just get his name real quick. So they have everything from leafy greens, like all the all the um Asian classic Asian vegetable vegetables that you can think of, um, chili peppers, mushroom fruits, citrus. Um, they have sauce. Um, they have they can even have um, if you so desire um, a lot of like Japanese items too, which is really awesome. Um, a bunch of sauces, a bunch of your like staples that you need, um, and they do free delivery up to a um, hundred dollars, which is really awesome. Um, so that's a lot of produce. Yeah, it is. Um, and it's so awesome that he, um, really, you know, decided to do something for his father. Um, and, and 
uh, yeah, um, I, I felt mm-hmm. like really inspired and touched and it's perfect for the holiday season. It's perfect if you're at home and you want to stream some Broadway shows um, <laughs> and, you know, just kind of get all your, and especially now with whatever is going on, another spike um, here in, at least in California. Um, so there you go, guys. I'm going to get his name. I'm going to look up his name real quick in a second and then, and then, um, but go ahead, Alana. What do you what you got for us today? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a business that can last once the pandemic is over. So good on that, mm-hmm. on good on the 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 childs of that of that gentleman because yeah. they have now a second business. Yeah. Um. Okay, my business is called Melanin Moments. So the holidays are coming, and that means two things: Christmas shopping and gift wrapping are about to hijack our lives. If you are a capital W rap star, I am jealous of you. I am a good old bag and paper broad. But if you like to wrap your gifts in some colorful, festive holiday paper that reflects the people that look like you, maybe the family around you, uh, everyone in wrapping paper that features a happy black Santa Claus, that's the one I'm more familiar with anyways, with happy black children, then check out Melanin Moments. Melanin Moments is a premier product company and their products are made with positive identity images designed to uplift and empower people of color. Their philosophy is based on promoting creativity and positivity and philanthropy via a healthy dose of printed entertainment. So basically, this company is just as it sounds. It is wrapping paper featuring beautiful black faces and beautiful black Santa Claus. I love that. I, I had no idea that this even existed and until I Googled it and was like, yes, of yes, of course. Like, this is brilliant. And seriously, y'all, their wrapping paper, it just brings me so much joy to look mm, at. How, their how, wrapping paper is high. Sorry, I just going to say, like, growing up and seeing, like, white Santa Clauses mm-hmm. on everything, how awesome is it for a, a little black baby to grow yeah. up and see black Santa Clauses? Yeah, a hundred percent. I I absolutely hear you. And it's something that seems so simple. Like, yes, right. we made wrapping paper with white Santa Clauses. Why not make wrapping paper with brown Santa Clauses or black Santa Clauses or yellow Santa Clauses? You can have like Santa Claus looks different all over the world. Why are mm-hmm. we not making say like wrapping paper that speaks to all people? I guess that's too much like making sense. But Melanin Moments is here. <laughs> But Melanin Moments is here to make sure that that bullshit doesn't happen anymore. Um, The wrapping paper is high quality. It's easy to use. It's really, really memorable and fun. It comes in English and Spanish. So you can, you know, Merry Christmas or you can get your Feliz Navidad on. Like it's, it's, it encompasses all people. Love that. Um, The gift wrap is available in different color designs. It features holiday color prints of Santa, a fun and stylish, like sassy snowman, a reindeer, and then young children. And the images aim to incite holiday cheer and offer an identity that people of color can be proud of. So comes in English and Spanish and purchasing with melanin moments is a purchase you can feel good about because uh, part of the proceeds go to benefit higher education STEM programs and visitation services for children of incarcerated parents. 
So it's the gift that keeps on giving. Mm. Uh, and that is melaninmoments.com or on Instagram, it's at melanin underscore moments underscore. Uh, and we will drop links to both of these businesses in the show notes because let's be real you can eat good for the rest of the year and if we go into a lockdown next year you can still be eating good with with asian veggies and then you can wrap up those holiday gifts with black joy and Mm, lots of cheer i love that that's so beautiful um oh i just wanted to say his name is joe boo um he is the founder i know what a great name um, that is a great name. My boo, my boo, Joe Boo. I know. I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, he is the founder of um, Asian-Veggies.com. And then on Instagram, they are Asian underscore Veggies.com. What a proud daddy. I'd be proud of, I'd be yeah. proud of him. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, y'all. We're dropping these notes. Oh, we're dropping these links in show notes. And with that said... It's time to geek out. Let's talk about our guest who we are bringing on the show. So Jose Solis is a Honduran culture critic based in New York City. He covers theater, film, and the arts, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, Backstage, American Theater Friends, and TDF Stages. He's the creator of Token Theater Friends, which is a podcast where he and his co-host bring a POC perspective to the performing arts. They also discuss how to make the entertainment industry a better, more equitable place for all and interview some of the biggest names in Broadway. I'm just saying I'm jealous. That's all. Um, <laughs> he's also the founder of the BIPOC Critics Lab, which is an initiative he started to address the lack of theater critic- critics of color by training the next generation of them by training the, by training the next generation of them. I mean, sorry for my uh, hiccup here, but also what a genius! Like, yep, just just passing the torch along. Um, mm-hmm. It is very rare that we have a fellow theater geek on the show, and we loved every minute of it. Yeah, Jose, welcome to the Black and Yellow Podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, we are so thrilled to be chatting with you, Jose. Let's start by having you tell our audience about the work that you do as a culture writer. Uh, oh, where do where I start? I, um, I uh, you know, basically, I, I, I transitioned from like film critic to like theater critic, to, like, mm. culture critic, because one hat doesn't serve us anymore. We need to own like right. an entire like... You know, like what's what's the what's the place where they sell the hats? A hat store. I don't know. Hat store. <laughs> uh, yes. uh, so yeah, I uh, I mostly focus in uh, theater since I moved to New York in 2012. Like I've done mostly theater, uh, but this year, for obvious reasons, I'm gonna try not to say the P word mm-hmm. or the or the C word. Like, I don't wanna... <laughs> or the or the or the president like T word. Anyway. Um, <laughs> This year, you know, I had to uh, push myself even more outside my, I don't even want to say my comfort zone because I never really like being in a comfort zone. Like I always try to, you know, I uh, I always try to like seek new things to cover. And I think opera might be the only thing that I've never covered. Ooh, uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah re- like uh, remind me to tell you some other time about the, uh, the six months that I spent as a sports writer oh, and I pulled it off and I don't know how. So, okay. yeah, 
this wasn't wow. really like an answer, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I do so many things that I, I don't know, it's like overwhelming. And I promise that when I saw, when I heard the question, I was like, oh yeah, I have like bullets and now they're gone. Well, no, I think that's fascinating. It, it's, it seems like an interesting trajectory, like TV, film, sports, theater, now moving into opera. Why not? Covering all kinds of culture, right? Well-rounded. Totally. Because the beauty I think is that, uh, I mean, all of us here, we don't only like love one, one thing, right? Like we don't right. like, like right. music and that's it. Mm-hmm. So I like that as culture critics, like we mm. should be able to like find, I don't know how this uh, Beyonce song is like this, like Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci painting yeah. and all of that. Mm. Well said. Yeah. And you're also a member of our tribe because you are a fellow podcaster. Tell us about Token Theater Friends, what made you want to create it, and what has it been like to interview undisputed legends of the stage like Leia Salonga, Josh Groban, Heidi Schreck, John Leguizamo, Ava Noblezada, just to name a few. So the thing, you know, doing interviews is my absolute favorite thing to do in the world, uh, which is why I always feel like very strange when I'm on the other side of the interview. and I'm like, oh, I know how people feel now. Um, during, yeah, doing interviews is my favorite thing because I approach it, I was gonna say almost, but I approach it literally as a, um, as the biggest fan of someone, you know, like when you get an opportunity to be with someone and maybe you get 20 minutes, half an hour that you might never get any other time in your life. Yeah. I, I go for it. I like ask everything that I've always wanted to know, keeping it, like professional, obviously, right? Like I'm not some tabloid. Um, <laughs> what did you have for um, breakfast? <laughs> uh, yeah, or like, I mean, like I really don't care about people's like uh, personal lives. Uh, so anyway, I love doing interviews so much and I also really love criticism. So a couple of years ago, I was, I was angry on Twitter as a lot of my projects have started. And <laughs> I... <laughs> I mean, let me let me ask the two of you something. Have you ever noticed that most of the like the you know the old guard, like the old super old white um, male critics, do you know what any of them look like? If you think about it, like so yes, because I in in looking for a guest and looking for you for this show, I inadvertently saw what a lot of them look like. They either are like short sort of stout balding white men or they're tall very lanky thick glasses wearing all and 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 totally hetero and cis the entire way through like you described the guy from ratatouille right like, that's <laughs> yeah like, that's what i was um, thinking the whole time <laughs> but i mean well you had you had the misfortune of having to like actually search for critics uh, right but right if you hadn't Going down to like, you. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you. Like, but you know, critics, like we don't really know what critics look like. Uh, so that always struck me as one of the reasons why uh, white male critics in particular are so mean and why they take so much pleasure in like destroying art and destroying shows and like criticizing from a place of like lacking in humanity, I call it. So I was angry about that. And I said, wouldn't it be great if, uh, you know, people of color and young people could see, you know, critics of color mm-hmm. doing this. I didn't want them to just read it because, like, I mean, when we read something, like, we don't usually really imagine the author. Um, 
I didn't want them to just hear them because like, again, you know, I wanted them to see people uh, of color, like talking about art, theater, interviewing people and moving and briefing and like, you know, like doing all yeah. like, the human things. So yeah. that's, that's how it started. Yeah, I was like, I need to do like some sort of like web thing because I really want people to see us. Like I am a firm believer in that thing about like, uh, you need, to, you have to see it to believe to be it. it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. And yeah, and you know, I, I partnered with uh, uh, my colleague, uh, Deep uh, Tran, um, and then we took it to American Theater where she worked, and then it became a podcast, but it was always like originally like a video. Um, it became a podcast, and then during the pandemic, uh, uh, when no one had anything to do and like everyone was furloughed, and <laughs> we're all still like, oh no, I said, I said the P word, sorry. That's um, okay. Uh, I'm getting really shot right now. No, um, I, you know, I was, I was feeling again very perilous because like I knew that there was theater happening. It was just not theater as the critics like uh, define oh, theater. I see. Yeah, but it was happening. So I was like, you know what? I'm taking my baby uh, on the road and I'm giving him his own uh, little house. So I took uh took in theater friends from um american theater and ccg who were really lovely for two years but you know like when the budget ran out i was like i need to do something with this so i you know bought like a wordpress thing and i set it up and then i was like i think people liked what we were doing together so i like invited deep again to uh to join me because i uh yeah i'd been doing it on my own since she had left for like six months but i was like it's always easier to do something with you know, with more than one person, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a yeah. really fun show. It's been, yes. it's been a nice way to, a, a nice show to add to my uh, podcast rep as I'm walking. And it, it, it does feel like a little plug into the theater world, because you're right, there is theater happening. It's just not in the way that we're used to seeing it. But just because we're not used to seeing it on Zoom doesn't make the theater that's happening in the world any less valid or any less good. So I, I agree with you on that a hundred percent. Yeah. And also like, I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to thank the artists who, you know, I remember Thursday when uh, all the theaters in New York city shut down and people obviously like everyone was devastated. Right. Cause like yeah. we thought everything was going to be back in a month. And I remember by that Monday, but that very first Monday after that Thursday, people were already doing stuff uh, wow. on like Instagram, on YouTube, on Animal Crossing. <laughs> and Anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anywhere. <laughs> so, you know, theater didn't like wait to right. be like mm -hmm. given permission to come back. It, uh, it was, it always was there just like in a different form. I love that. Yeah, performers can help a perform and, and you, you can't hold them back and you can't hold them down. Um, and I think this is a really good transition into talking about the, the, the demand for change on Broadway that feels like it's been heard around the world. So I want to kick off uh, this question. This is a two-part question. Part one, um, when the We See You White American Theater letter dropped, did, did you have any idea that the letter was coming? Were there rumblings uh, about it at the sort of virtual Broadway water cooler? Did anyone feel this movement happening? And then part two, what were your reactions when you read it for the first time? 
So now you're making me, I'm going to burst into something's coming from West Side Story. For okay. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, there was, there was kind of, there was kind of like a, a noise about something. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a noise that something spe- that specific was coming. It was more of a, how can something not come? Because ah. for, you know, for the longest time, uh, Broadway specifically and theater, uh, you know, all of American theater has been, I believe, and I say this because I love the field so much, but it's been the field that's the most self, um, not self, but yeah, self, delusional of every artistic field. Uh, If you think about it, when Me Too happened and when Time's Up happened, theater was the only place where, you know, no... No harassers, no abusers. Uh, theater, yeah, so theater was, theater was like, yeah, winning my Tony and like love is love is love and like we're all happy and we're all a happy family and we love everyone and theater has a big silence problem. Mm. Um, um, a couple, not a couple, like it was last year. Time is so confusing right now, right? <laughs> yeah, it all um, runs together. <laughs> <laughs> like last year, for instance, I. Uh, I have a, you know, I have a very, like, I'm a very, I'm a loud mouth. Like, I'm usually, like, in my, in my personal life, I'm very quiet and, like, wallflowerish. But uh, as a critic, you know, it's my job. I'm, like, freaking, like, Erin Brockovich, like, meets, like, I don't know, like, AOC meets, like, <laughs> I, bet, yeah. love it, love it. Yeah. I, I wish I had male heroes, but uh, anyway. <laughs> um, so last year, uh, and near the end of the year, in November, I published a, a column, an opinion piece, called precisely what people of color uh, go through at the theater. I mean, I I'm read just it. It was, title, it was but... pretty spot on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. and you know, like I was, I was really heartbroken because I got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails, like DMs and like messages on social media, with people sharing their stories, and they were like, "You gave us a voice," and I'm like all of you have had voices forever. Like, why aren't we talking about this? So obviously when, you know, when the uh, rightful Black Lives Matter uh, protests uh, started uh, after George Floyd was murdered and every industry started doing uh, something, mm-hmm. I mean, whether it was out of fear, out of like, you know, like whatever, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, but theater needed to do something. So when that arrived, it was because it was about time. I really thought it was very thorough, but I <laughs> there's a part of me that feels like what we needed was what we still need in this country and in this world in order to get somewhere is radical, immediate change. Mm. And the letter felt to be very much like going, you know, like pointing like, oh, if, if you do it next time, you know, like if in two years you're still doing this, uh, you're grounded. Ah. And yeah, I, 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 I feel like this was the year when, when we were supposed to burn things down and please mm. FBI and like CIA. And like, <laughs> like, Listening. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, but to burn systems down, yeah. to burn yeah. like the really disgusting past that this country was built on and you know to acknowledge it but also to burn all the the nonsense that doesn't work that we haven't heard it and we didn't so i admired obviously what the letter meant but it 
wants to accomplish. But I feel that it has been too generous with the people in power who have not been generous to any of us in any way. Interesting. I feel that smoke. Yeah, I know. Keep it real. Seriously. So you you just talked about how your reaction um, to the letter when you read it, but how do you think you started talking about it a little bit right now. How do you think Broadway is reacting to this? Again, with, you know, with platitudes and they held some sort of like black lives for Broadway kind of thing, like uh, mm. sometime in the summer. And I'm like, what is this? Like, you know, where do you see organizations and fields and industries just put something together just because it's, you know, in the zeitgeist, yeah. you know, they don't mean it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, you know, lucky for them, and I say this, like, I shouldn't use that word. It's not lucky at all. But, uh, you know, probably without the, uh, if it wasn't for this thing that makes us all be home, um, I don't think this movement would have, like, really caught our attention because we're always so distracted by nonsense yeah. that it was, like, the in a really twisted, perverse way, it was like the perfect alignment of like really horrible tragedies for people to wake up. So, I mean, Broadway still hasn't done anything because they're not open. So I hope that when they open, if they open in like next year or whenever, uh, but who am I kidding? I mean, just this week, we were getting press releases that plays that open, that were supposed oh. to open in March are opening like two years from now. And it's like, they're just pushing the same you know, plays that were supposed to open this year and moving them to 2022 or 2023 or whatever. Wow. So, yeah. really? oh. oh, my heart. Yeah. Oh. It's, yeah. If you love theater, it's always going to break your heart. I'm, I'm very sorry. Yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, um, I was talking to my best friend from college last night. We went to college in upstate New York. Both were theater majors and I had a couple of friends on Broadway and I'm just like, God, I like, my heart goes out to Broadway performers and Broadway critics and Broadway and, and tech people because all of these wonderful artists are out of work and many of these wonderful artists are delivering for like Postmates and Seamless right now. And, 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 and stages won't be reopening for quite a while and it just breaks my heart to think of these amazing performers out of work. It, it, it's the saddest thing to me. It's heartbreaking. And, and that's not even going to the whole like union fight uh with like yeah. sand and like, i'm like come on like they're taking away like actors and performers and theater people's like health insurance yeah. during this thing Jeez, mm-hmm. what a mess huh oh god so you pretty much answered i have my next question i feel like you pretty much answered um that broadway isn't really making any changes to meet the demands of performers of color no, yeah. I mean, Got it. they can claim that they can't because nothing's open right now. Mm-hmm. But also by the things that they have been like rescheduling and reprogramming and all of that, it's showing that they uh, they kind of are going to pretend like someone just pre- you know like pressed pause. Pause. On Got it. 12th. Yeah, and then whenever they open, it's like oh play. Huh. 
Have you noticed any changes in your immediate Broadway family and the people that you work around? Have you noticed that any of your colleagues are beginning to uh, write differently, maybe look to different places to cover shows because Broadway is dead right now, but I know that like the Berkshires Theater Company just did Godspell and like I know that other more independent theater companies are doing things. Are any of your your fellow critics um, looking to maybe go outside of the New York bubble for a little bit to, to review theater? Like, oh God, just, I think I'm just wondering what the adjustment is like for everyone involved. Yeah, I would say that some, some are. Uh, that was also one of the other reasons why I wanted to relaunch Token Theater Friends in June, because I, I'm not gonna like name outlets because that's not sure. Classy. That's okay. Uh, but I was really angry that you know I was home unemployed. I was making like literally three hundred dollars a month, mm -hmm. um, and all the uh, all these outlets you know with staff people and like real budgets, right? Yeah. We're writing about I don't know like the best cast recordings from like 1945 and I'm like oh. there's people there's like actual artists doing the work right now why aren't you covering that work wow. and it was because it was online and it was yeah not theater so I uh I yeah I, I I wish people were doing a little bit more to be honest I mean obviously people who 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 can get paid for it right like I'm not gonna right. say that yeah right um we're all dealing with like different like financial situations right now. But I wish that the, the big, 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 you know, publications that have power and that have really strong voices would venture out of, you know, like trying just to serve all those like upper middle class white people yeah. and actually start yeah. talking about shows that, you know, kids are doing shows and like mm -hmm. teenagers and college students and right. Broadway artists, God bless them, but they're not really doing anything right now. So it's not their time. So it's time to start covering <laughs> the people who are doing the work. Mm. Yeah, that's a, <clears throat> that's a painful thing to hear, but it's, it's so true. And God, I just wish that Broadway could do better. Um, some would call the We See You White American Theater letter a call to action for Broadway to change its ways. Some would call it a list of demands that the theater industry writ large needs to implement in order to serve a brighter, a broader range of theater goers. Cause let's be real, Broadway has an old person problem, if you will. Like the people that subscribe to Broadway are much older and like the, the economic level is different from, from the new generation of younger theater goers coming up behind them. This has been a longstanding Broadway problem. Some see that letter as a, a statement of goals, uh, similar to something like the Green New Deal, and others choose to see it as an anti-racism manual on workplace safety. How are you choosing to view that document and why? I think it's a little bit of all those things, which is why it didn't really click for me. Uh, hmm. it, was, it was too kind. I mean, not that I'm saying that people don't need to be kind, uh, but it was, it felt more like a, uh, I need to, I need to. Like a warning. About, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like, like a, like yeah. a, like a, like a gentle nudge, like, mm. hey. Yeah. yeah, like a, you do that one more time and you'll see. Got um, it. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I, obviously, like, I, it's just my opinion, right? But I, I, 
I, yeah, I, I do think that there needs to be like, you know, like shorter, like, uh, like deadlines and shorter, you know, like I, I think we should start asking people to step down from their positions. Ah, okay. People who, people who are not good. I mean, mm-hmm. I say the yeah. same thing about, about government, about Congress and the Senate. Like sure. if you have been doing the same thing for decades and they remain the same, that doesn't mean you're good. It means that you're really mediocre. If you haven't been able to change anything in decades, <laughs> they're like, and they're like, I've been here for decades. I know this. I'm like, no, it's time to let the young people take over. Yeah. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get, Spot on. Get rid of the people that are perpetuating the problem. A hundred percent. Um, well, I gotta say, one of my favorite things about going to see theater is that great theater has a knack for turning a mirror on society and it shows us to us and makes us think about the world differently. However, in this case, the Broadway community is turning a mirror on Broadway, but do you think that Broadway is willing to reflect and commit to doing the anti-racism work it needs to do going forward? Honestly, no, as long as, as long as Broadway specifically, you know, like I, cause I, I do, I do love off Broadway and I do love off of Broadway. Yeah. But as long as Broadway remains such a financial, you know, like financial interest driven thing, mm-hmm. it's kind of like Disneyland. It's, uh, it's not going to be bold artistically. It's not going to be bold in the changes it makes. It's always going to be some sort of like big, like ride, you know, like a bunch of like rides all over New York. So (laughs) while, yeah, well, Well you know, (laughs) I'm going to like, someone's going to like set me on fire after this. (laughs) Um, While, yeah, but you know, while Broadway is devoted to making money Mm -hmm. specifically and only making money, I don't think things are going to change. You know, Mm -hmm. they're going to, do you remember, for instance, and I use this example and people go like, oh, do you remember, for instance, uh, 2016, the year when we all had hope. Remember that year? Yes, yeah. Um, and June uh, 2016, uh, the Tonys was like the big Hamilton like, right. sweep. And yeah. it was the first time in Tony history that four uh, actors of color won every uh, musical category. Mm-hmm. And people were like, we solved racism. We got diversity and yes. equity and beauty. Uh-huh. Next year, four white winners the year after that you know it went back to like Mm -hmm. they checked the box yeah and yeah we're moving on kind of a thing yeah I kind of to me kind of because we're in Los Angeles and you know Alana and I have done a lot of the acting scene here it does feel similar akin to how Hollywood operates where unless they're really being called out for and and here it, it has happened I I see now more than Broadway I mean obviously my ears and my satellites aren't in in New York which now I'm thinking like everything you're bringing up is just taking me all, all the way back through all my years of college um and it's true, like, I, I do feel like when the Oscars came around and they gave Parasite so many awards, you know, similar to like, oh, yeah, we checked the boxes, we we gave the, the awards, to, you know, all these Korean, um, Korean people. And, and, and although that happened, you know, not much has really changed since 2019 here in terms of like advocating for um, Asian Americans and crazy rich Asians and all these things that really blew up. Um, and so... The question is that we don't know where Broadway is going, right? 
like it seems like you said they they put a pause um and and that's that 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 no one knows exactly what they're gonna do right in in terms of figuring that out yeah we don't know when we're gonna get anything live and like to be together again so i mean even parasite like it's, it's such a brilliant movie but the fact that the academy which is like a bunch of like millionaires yeah and old probably too (laughs) i'm like it's kind of like defeats the point of parasite i mean parasite is criticizing you like you yeah i was honestly like surprised that they picked it but i think when they pick something like that it's like george clooney and like sandra bullock and like you know matthew mcconaughey going like we're all like y'all out there we're all real people and they have yachts and their mansions and jets and all that so yeah. Well, can I ask you, like, where would you like to see Broadway go from here? Because in prep for this episode, I was doing some some historical research, and I was wondering, okay, hmm, is Broadway in New York as we knew it pre-pandemic still going to be the thing? Or are we going to see Broadway uh, lose its power, but we might see a version of Black Broadway pop up in Washington, D.C., like it used to be once upon a time? Or are we going to see other smaller theaters or other smaller cities that have a big enclave of performers sprouting up their own little mini Broadways? Like, where would you, in, in a perfect world, where would you like to see it go? Uh, in a perfect world, I, you know, as much as I love Broadway, uh, in a perfect world, what I would hope is that people let go of the illusion of Broadway and that they take Broadway for what it is. It's Disneyland. It's Hollywood. It's, you know, it's Fantasyland. So that people stopped aspiring to Broadway Mm. and stopped, you know, thinking of Broadway as the measure for what great theater is. Because it's not like we know, you know, if we, yeah, spot if we, on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, if we acknowledge that Broadway is the Marvel universe, mm-hmm. we would move past it. Like no one's saying, you no, know, the Marvel. I mean, I don't want to get in trouble with like fanboys, uh, <laughs> but but you know, we we know why we go to the Marvel right. movies, right? Right. And yes. We yeah. yeah, we don't go for that mirror. We go for like Chris Hemsworth's like like biceps. And, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I, yeah, if, if Broadway was a little bit more self, what, self? Um, Self-sustaining. But also like self-aware, it would not ah. pretend that it's giving people oh, something man. it's not. Oh my, you just blew my mind. Because <laughs> I, I have been that person, you know, that you're describing and maybe still am. Um, but I mean, it's not your fault fault it's 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 right. the same as hollywood i mean like it's this like uh patriarchy it's like white supremacy again like being imposed on us uh where you know if we took it for what it is like it, i mean it's, for starters like ticket prices would have to like decrease if people yeah. were like i don't i don't care mm-hmm. uh if like, the government started funding theater for instance if uh one of the biggest problems i think in new york city specifically is that off-Broadway, which is where like the really great work is happening. Mm-hmm. Off-Broadway theaters are constantly, you know, a, a show can't run there forever. Yeah, like, right, yeah. So, limited. Yeah, so that's, you know, I wish there were more, like let's call it like permanent off-Broadway houses where mm-hmm. a show that's like really good, something like, uh, um, oh my God, like my Strange Loop, for instance, mm-hmm. or something like, like, like Fairview could run 
forever. Mm-hmm. But no, instead, like those shows, and it's usually like by artists of color and like by people who are really brilliant are fighting for those spots. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, like yeah, like Aladdin is on Broadway for like it's like Lion King. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, because correct me if I'm wrong. Part of the the funding that Broadway gets is from tourism. So when you are being partially funded with tourism dollars, you kind of have to. Um, kowtow to what tourists want as opposed to Broadway or as opposed to theater in a city like Los Angeles like we're in which is not funded by tourism we have been putting up edgy stuff pre-pandemic we're able to put up edgier stuff because we're like well we're only playing to a 50 75 seat house like we don't have to be full yeah like we don't have to be full and we can tell these stories that push the envelope differently than New York can because Broadway has to look out for not just the 50-year-old couple coming into town for their anniversary, but the eight-year-old and their parents who are coming to see Broadway for the first time, right? Yeah, and also like international tourists. But if you like think about it, like it, it takes us back to Hollywood. I mean, if you talk about like, the, you know, like uh, Middle America, is that what we, that's yeah. That? Yeah, I know, mm-hmm. yeah, Middle America. Or if you think about, you know, the other countries outside the States, what the United States exports is Marvel, Disney, uh, blockbusters, uh, mm. fantasy. So it, it's, it's, you know, it's like a self-feeding like, like cycle Very where cool. like we, we send them pretty women. And I love Julia, so. <laughs> we send them pretty women. So when they come to New York, we give them pretty women the musical. So yeah. it's, yeah, you know. If, yeah, yeah, yeah. if Hollywood, yeah, if Hollywood invested in like uh, distributing like uh, films not in English, something like Parasite or like uh, Roma or like so many other things, yeah. maybe we would be seeing like, you know, the, the foreign markets mm. and tourists want something different when they come here. Right. Because like, like you take a film like Roma, you know, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but like in Mexico may not have the power to distribute something like that internationally, but America does and America has. So why don't they do it, right? That's the question there. Why don't they push these multicultural, these multicultural stories, these things that are not in English internationally because they know they probably won't make money and they know that they, they need to make money, you know, like you said. And also because like someone has to maintain white supremacy and it's mm, Hollywood and right. all the industries. Like why, why would they want people to see, you know, I was telling someone the other day that I grew up seeing, I grew up and it's really like messed up. I grew up rooting against Latinos when I went to the movies because they were the drug dealers, the villains, yeah. the, the criminals. The yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they, yeah. they teach us how to root against ourselves. Crazy, right? It's so crazy. Ooh, that hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ooh, that's a mic drop moment. I'm going to leave that there. <clears throat> there for our listeners to marinate on because I think it's an important thing to think. And I think that that's a really important uh, discovery that you just made that I think maybe a lot of us have also felt when going to the movies, but haven't necessarily consciously put into words. And so I think that what you said there was was beautiful on its own. And I'm going to leave it there because I do want to switch gears a little bit here. Because candidly, just so everyone listening is aware, this was one of the more difficult shows that we have created this year. 
we read the letter. We said, oh, this is a great show episode, show episode idea, planned it out. And once we knew we wanted to cover this topic and we knew we wanted a theater critic or a culture writer of color, as opposed to a performer, we wanted someone who was um, uh, a little bit, who, who wasn't dependent on the next job going up so that we could have a, a very honest candor conversation like we're having right now. When we knew we wanted a culture writer of color or a theater critic of color, the process of finding one was frustratingly difficult. And it became alarmingly clear to us that there is a serious lack of critics of color in the world today, not just in Broadway, but in other respective fields as well. Why is that? Why are there so few critics of color? One of the biggest reasons, and obviously I can't prove any of this, it's just like my impressions and what, you know, what I've learned uh, in the eight years that I've been doing this. One of the biggest reasons is obviously white supremacy and racism, right? But uh, like filtered through what I was talking about earlier, like we don't grow up seeing anyone who does that. We grow up seeing the Ratatouille guy the creepy vampire guy or like the short, uh, you know, bald guy doing it. Yeah. And they're always white. So if we don't see it and if we see no one, it's kind of like by default, we assume that it's not something that we can do. Mm. Um, mm. It's, yeah, yeah I, uh, I, I, I would say that that's like the biggest, like uh, the biggest, like, the biggest reason. Yeah. I yeah. mean, because when you were right, asking yeah, like, me no earlier, if I had seen any critics, the only reason I had seen these critics was looking for you. I was looking for a culture, uh, a culture writer of color. And I went through all of these different avenues and different critic associations. And I was like, fuck, I would never know what any of you people looked like if I weren't researching right. this episode. And I, yeah. And I don't. And when you asked me that question, I was like, I actually have no fucking clue. And yet all these, all these people are, are writing movies, are writing restaurants, are, are writing these, these op-eds, are these, these columns on, on, on art, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that's who they are. It blows my mind. It really does. Um, no one grows up thinking they're going to be a critic, right? Like, no one, I don't think I've heard anyone say, oh, except you. <laughs> in terms of like, maybe more people it, should. Yeah. That's true. Absolutely. Um, which is, which is really awesome. And we, again, we're so happy that you're here to have this very, very honest and frank conversation. Um, so we know that you did start an initiative to diversify the next um, generation of Broadway critics. Can you tell us a little bit about it and any of our listeners who are inspired by this episode and, and how they can join? Yeah. So uh, I, I've always wished that I had, that I'd had a mentor. And one of the things also that prevents, that prevents uh, people of color from like pursuing uh, careers that are like seen as being for white people only is that no one's willing to mentor us. Like no one offers us a hand. No one offers to, uh, you know, not help us or like give us like charity or whatever, but no one offers to like read our work or to listen to what we uh, compose or whatever. So I always wanted that and I, for years, I was foolish enough to think that the good, you know, like the good, like the blindside people 
in theater, like the Sandra Bullocks and like the crash people in theater were going to understand what I saw, that I saw this need, you know, where I was the only person like uh, in like a room of uh, cricks and I was the only person of color. And people would say to me like, oh, you must feel very proud of yourself. And I'm like, I feel heartbroken. I hate being the only one like me here. I hate it. It's not something to be proud of. It's, and I was like, and you should be ashamed. Um, so I kept, I, I foolishly kept trying and, and, and hoping and waiting that someone would be like, uh, okay, yeah, we're going to help you. Like, here's what we're going to give you and just set it up. No one ever did. All, all I ever got was like, uh, email us or like, we're going to have a conversation. Like they would take me out for coffee or like have me like in a meeting for like three hours and nothing ever got done. So again, during the, uh, during the, 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 the protests, I, I felt absolutely powerless. I, you know, I felt, I, I think many of us felt like we really couldn't do anything. Right. I mean, this is happening. Like the cops are killing uh, black men and, and women and people are out in the streets, like just like wanting to seek justice and the president like bombs them. And I, I was like, I need to do something. Like I don't, I can't do anything else, but like do what I can. Someone told me, I don't remember who it was, but someone told me something that kind of like, was like, uh-huh. Someone was like, Oh, my friend, my, my, my friend Andrew was like, uh, we all march in different ways, he told me. Mm, yeah. And I said, what's my march? And I, you know, I had all this free time. I had this anxiety. I had this heartbreak. I had this anger also. And I was like, okay, I'm home. So, you know, like, so, I'll, you know, like all the time, not so often, like yeah. all the time. <laughs> uh, forever. I, yeah, yeah, forever. I can't sleep because of the fireworks that they were like doing in in June in New York. I can't mm. sleep. So I'm like, I stayed up and I spent, uh, you know, weeks. Uh, and obviously like I had like an idea from like before and I spent weeks like developing and giving shape to a program uh, that was like the best kind of like thing that I, that I could come up with, right? And I, uh, I spoke to some educators to just be like, does this make sense? <laughs> and yeah and then one day again like I went on Twitter and I was like I have this thing I don't know if it works but if some of you are willing to come do this with me uh in a like a pilot program come like I want to I want to do this with you and by August like we started August 9th I launched uh the program it is you know I, it's called the BIPOC Critics Lab and I had eight eight BIPOC critics from all over the country who had never been given the opportunity, who had never really been published. And I, I, um, I also did something, you know, cause like what we hear about like, oh, there's still jobs for critics. Blah, blah, blah. So what I did was that I decided that it was time for the entire system to be accountable. So I reached out to theater companies and I said, you want better critics? Like you complain when your shows get bad reviews because all this old white men hate them. So if you want better critics, help me mm. nurture them and help me like, give them a place. And I partnered with theater companies all over the country who paid each critic Ooh. and then published 
their very first you know published paid piece amazing and yeah and at some point uh it was only a month into what i was doing in september i got a call from the kennedy center and they said we saw what you're doing and we want you to do it at the kennedy center oh. and, yeah and i started sunday i started uh with 17 uh oh bipoc critics from wow. this time from all over all over the world yeah we have people from india and Jose. Um, that is amazing. Oh, so that's brilliant. I think that's, that's really exciting. brilliant because the, the part of your story where you were waiting for a mentor and it never came, I think that's really a common feeling and story for a lot of people of color in different fields. I think yeah. often we're sold on the, what I call the PR spin of fame. We're like famous white performer, you know, insert famous white performer's name here. They were in the right place at the right time and they found yeah. their right mentor. And you're like- They were at the mall walking around. Yeah, like, some like, agent I don't know many people of color whose lives work for that. I Or who, whose lives work like that. Like that's also a part of white supremacy is like, these white people could do it this way. You can too and you're like but hold on <laughs> like uh there's something different between me and them and hats off to you jose because you I'm are like tearing doing up the work like the real work to make sure that other performers have the opportunity to get reviewed by critics who are willing to engage in the work and the context of their work the way that it should be <sighs> yes i know okay. I know. I'm trying to choke back tears for this. For oh, sorry, go ahead, Jack. It's your question. It's okay. Oh, no worries. God, so I know. Moved. I was. I was getting teared. I was cold because yeah. it's, it's pretty chilly in my house right now. But after hearing what you said, I'm like all fired up. <laughs> like uh, absolutely. The layers are coming off. Talk about pulling um, up. Love it. Yeah. Seriously. Uh, so we'd love to leave. Oh, did you want to say something? No, no, no. Yeah, go was, for it. Oh, sorry. I was gonna say. Uh, no, no, no. no it, it's fine. I was gonna say, and I'm saying it on the air, so like you can leave it, and then it's like a commitment. Like I. One of the other things is that, you know, I'm not, I, I don't want to be the only person. So like the pilot program I did on my own, cause like I had no funding and I was like trying things out. But for the Kennedy Center, like my dream vision was always to have BIPOC instructors teach every course. So my idea is that for this program to like run a couple times a year, maybe. And I was gonna say like, you should come, the two of you should come teach our podcast class either next spring We'd if I get funding. To or when the Kennedy Center like does it again, so. We're here, yeah. we're here. Yeah. You you we're let here. us know, we will happily do it. And it's recorded, so now you can be like, hey. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I love, okay, I love this. Amazing. Oh, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I thought that's, that's a great vision. Uh, so speaking of call to action and, and, and deliverables, um, how can theater patrons work to uphold the demands made by BIPOC performers of color once we are free to go to the theater again? How can they? <laughs> by withholding their money and by not going to see like another like Arthur Miller and another like Eugene O'Neill and another Shakespeare. And I, you know, I, those are like great writers, but really do we need like another version of like Twelfth Night, really? Mm. Uh, and do we need our revival of like All My Sons, like really? Or do we, yeah, no. So like I would say withholding money, like not buying, you know, not subscribing to like companies that only do that kind of work would be the most mm. uh, immediate way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like, yeah. I mean, if they a, don't produce the things that we need, then yeah. we just don't go. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, it's like yeah. put your money where your mouth is, except for don't spend that money. Absolutely. <laughs> Literally. I love that. Yeah. Um, okay. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions for our last? Okay, let's do a rapid fire. First answer to come to mind. There are no wrong answers. Here we go. What's your favorite musical? West Side Story. What's your favorite theater? The Delacorte. Okay, what's your favorite stage door moment? And I'll explain stage door. We've explained stage door at the opening of the show. My favorite stage door moment was when I went to see Audra McDonald at, uh, in, in Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill. I never, uh, I never stay for stage door, not because I'm not a fan, but because I always need to like pee and like, you know, like get to the subway <laughs> before, yeah, get to the subway before like it gets crazy. But that night, I was so moved by her work that more than having her like sign my program, I just wanted to thank her. Mm. And I, that's what I did. I, I told her, uh, thank you. Like that was just like, I felt like it was like one of those performances that you kind of know becomes like part of like the DNA of your soul. Mm. And, and it was so interesting because like on my way, you know, I, I, I went and I saw it. Uh, that night and oh and it was like so surreal because like also like next to me like in my row it was like Andrew Garfield, uh, Emma Thompson, uh, Mike Nichols, Diane Sawyer and Steven Sondheim. You so, were like oh my god pinch me is this real like am I living right now? <laughs> it was so strange so it was like a like magical night and everything but when I was going home from seeing Audra play Billie Holiday I suddenly realized that it was the anniversary of my great uncle's uh, death. And Billy was one of his like favorites. And I was like, you sent me here today, right? Mm. And it was, yeah, it like, came full circle in this like really, How beautiful. Really, right? And sorry, that wasn't like quick, but sorry. No, 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 <laughs> no. good. What's the, the, the last book you read that left a lasting impression? That left a lasting impression? I would say, um, probably the constitution. I, okay. you know, yeah, I, I, I got a, like a copy of the constitution when I went to see what the constitution means to me yes. at the Woodstock Film Festival. Uh, and I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you, I was like, you're not as bad as I thought. Like, it's just like that <laughs> all these old men are, you know, using you for their own benefit. But I was, I was like, yeah. Okay, the Constitution. I like. What's the what, if you had uh, one last meal on Earth? What would it be? It would probably be like I don't know, like a bathtub full of like uh, fried shrimp. Okay. With oh, like right. <laughs> cocktail sauce and like tartar sauce and like marinara and like fries. I'm and, literally like, imagining it right now in a, in a bathtub. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Great. And like the biggest like. Diet Coke, you can imagine. Like, I wouldn't even want booze. Maybe like a little like, glass of champagne. Okay. <laughs> but we're really after that, like, bathtub full of, of fried shrimp. I love it. <laughs> What's a recipe you cannot stop making in quarantine? Uh, I learned how to make this, like, really good old fashions with pineapple juice instead of simple syrup, because I always Ooh. fuck up simple syrup. I don't know how to make it. Like, so it's like sugar, basically. Uh, but the guy at my liquor store is like, he's one of my best friends now, right? I see him like every day. Every day. <laughs> uh, he was like, have you ever tried using pineapple juice? So it works wonders, you know, like uh, 
yeah, one measure of like bourbon, like half a tablespoon of like pineapple juice and like throw in some like bitters and a cherry and yeah. wow. best old fashioned ever. Sounds awesome. yummy. What's your favorite album of 2020? Disco by Kylie Minogue. I could oh. I could sing the entirety of it right now to all yes. of you. Uh, <laughs> oh, I love Kylie. Jose Solis the musical. There you go. Uh, musical you would like to see made into a movie. Hmm. Maybe I think Shuffle Along. Okay. It was, okay. Yeah. It was just like incredible i'm angry that the show just went away so fast okay what's a show that you would recommend to anyone whether they're into theater or not yeah this is like a really terrible cop-out but i don't like recommending things because i i turn into netflix and i'm like give me your budget give me your favorite genre give me your favorite actor uh but if we if we were talking broadway like i'll give i'll give an answer if we were talking broadway i would say uh before the thing started, I would say uh, it would have been like the uh, revival of Oklahoma, which mm. was like really marvelous, but also Phantom of the Opera. It is the ultimate Broadway show. It does it everything that Broadway I know, does, right? That organ. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's, yeah. Have you ever walked out of a show? Yes, not that many, but I, I have, yeah. Can I ask what um, show? Or are you like, I don't want to talk about it? Oh, I'll talk about it. Uh, I, I think it was it was the musical version, like off Broadway, of uh, Calamity Jane, mm. and is that what it's called? I don't remember. Uh, but anyway, it's like it's like Western, right? And where there's like uh, Native Americans, and the entire cast was white, and like a bunch of like white twinks, and like white ladies, God. and I saw like the uh, Native Americans come out, and it was like a chorus, you know, like. Like line of like twinks, like white, ah, like okay. instigates. Oh, no. ah. I got up and I left. Okay, that that like, that that image would 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 do it well, in for you. Yeah, yeah. we're gonna I don't leave it for that. There. Thank you so much for engaging in that rapid fire. But last but not least, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Where can we find you? Where can we read your work? Any potential critics of color? How can they get involved in your initiative? We want all the plugs. Thank you so much. So I, I'm soon, I can't say when, cause I don't know. I mean, it's not like I'm whole, yeah, I don't know, but I have time. Uh, uh, we're going to be launching the official website for the BIPOC Critics Lab. So everyone can see what the previous cohort and what this new cohort were doing uh, with the support of the Kennedy Center. Uh, Then there will be more information there about how to apply for future uh, iterations and that crowdfunding if people can share. Um, And, Everywhere else, I'm at Jose Solis Mayen uh, on Twitter, and I post everything that I do for work there. Also, a lot of like random like uh, Kylie lyrics and <laughs> and like a little like existential like you know uh, thought every now and then. Okay. So Twitter. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for talking with us, Jose. This was a really moving, really really great conversation. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you to the Black and Yellow listeners. That's our show today. We are the Black and Yellow Podcast. If you want to find us on Instagram, we are on Instagram at Black and Yellow Podcast. Or you can find us individually. I am Alana Webster, but you can find me at Renegade of Fun on the gram. 
I'm Jacqueline Chung Young on Instagram. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and rate, review, let us know what you guys thought about this episode and we'll speak to you guys next time. Thanks guys. Bye. Bye-bye.